before we begin, I just want to say thank you to the Hurt family for leading us tonight, today, and, and last night. And uh, if you're grateful for their leadership, would you just express it to them now? Amen. And um, uh, Kevin and his wife are going to have to slip out and uh, prepare for tomorrow morning at their church. And so um, I, I wanted them to be able to hear that before they left. So I'm grateful for their ministry. And we're thankful for Josiah and his, Josiah and his wife going to be here in the morning, right? That's good because I'm going to be at a loss um, without you to help on the, the music side. Well, what a day it's been, and if you've been able to be a part of the other sessions that took place this morning, uh, what a blessing to hear the hearts of faculty here at the school and what they are pouring into these students as, as God leads them day by day, week by week, year by year to invest in the lives of the students. The school here is so significant. I I have some things I want to say about that. I'm probably going to wait till in the morning, but um, I am very grateful for this school. It has a rich heritage, but it's not the heritage that I'm most concerned, interested, and excited about. It's the future. God has a future for a group of people who have set their hearts to honor him, and those who lead this school have, in fact, done that. And so I may say a word about that in the morning. I don't know. Um, they talked about books this morning for sale. Uh, I want to recommend the prayer book by Art. I do. It's, uh, it's, it's so thorough and so, so wonderfully done and done with such a clear uh, clarity that sometimes you don't find. You'll have to pick those things out as you read other, other books. And so I do recommend it. And I, is it still on sale for $5? Yes. <laughs> Just $5, only $5, um, and it's still available. And there are books back there. I think there are still books back there by Dan Johnson. If you didn't know Dan, what a precious heart. And and you want to pick those up and look at what's there. There's a book by Jerry White, who was a father in the Lord to me and so many others, um, associated with the school for years. And there's a book there. There's one that's, I don't know if it's still in print, Fellowship with God. By Jerry White, and if you ever have a chance to read that, that relates to what we've been doing this weekend, and I recommend that as well. Can we just begin tonight by just, if you would, if you would bow your heads with me and take a deep breath and just pause uh, before we begin, and we want to quiet our hearts before the Lord, we want to be still. Because what we're about to do is really to hear his voice. We want to seek him and what he has to say to our hearts. So, Father, we turn to you. We recognize that we don't just need you, but you are our life. And that apart from you, there is nothing to live for. There is no life. That that you created us. In your image, that you made us in such a way that in union with you, that your beauty and your glory of an invisible God might be made visible to all creation through our lives. And Lord, I don't understand that. I don't understand that plan. Um, It's not the way I would have done it. 
but it's the way you chose to do it. And so you have taken great delight in us. You have, you have loved us and you have demonstrated your love through Jesus, your son. Forever demonstrating your love by his death on the cross. Carrying our sins away so that we might know you. So that we might experience life as you intended it from the very beginning. Father, as we talk tonight about prayer, help us, Lord, enable us not to talk about it as a discipline or an activity. Lord, enable us to understand it as simply what we do in our relationship with you. Give us the insight we desperately need as we consider what it means to, to have a prayer life all our days and to walk with you with an open heart. We are trusting you to come and walk among us this evening and speak to each of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I became a Christian, it was in the context of just a very broken world, as it was for all of you, if you know Christ tonight. And my family was broken and damaged by sin. My life was broken and damaged by sin. And there are consequences to sin. And some of you know that there are the consequences that run through families and run through generations, as God said it would. And, you know, I think back to, I don't know how many greats, but my, uh, my, my parents were divorced when I was young. And um, my, my grandmother had been divorced and my great-grandparents divorced in 1912. Uh, my grandfather, wounded by that, took his stepfather's name. Uh, the original name was McBurney, and he, he took his stepfather's name, Donnelly. And so I was born a Donnelly. And then my parents divorced, and my stepdad adopted me and became my dad, and I became a Pusick. And, and, and then I could just keep going back generations. I, I like reading about dead relatives, and so, you know, <laughs> occasionally my wife and I go on vacations, and we, we make dead relative detours and we go look at <laughs> graveyards and dusty offices where they store records and that sort of thing. It's it's like a puzzle and we, we enjoy that. But the brokenness in, in my home resulted in when I became a believer, the 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 baggage, the hurt, the damage, the things that the Lord wanted to address in my life, so many of those things continued. I could talk to you about that all night, and that's not why we're here. But we could just talk about how the Lord has, piece by piece, um, pointed things out, corrected me, revealed himself to me and what pleased him, and changed me. And uh, I was such an angry guy. Just such an angry guy. Um you know, I told you I married this this little deacon's girl daughter from Mississippi, and she grew up in a little Baptist church, and she played the piano in high school and taught little girls classes when she was in high school. And you know, I don't i I know the I know that Jesus never sinned, and some people believe Mary never sinned, and my wife is probably close. I mean, that's how I looked at her. She was just so tenderhearted and so 
so precious in her love for the Lord. And so she married me. Good grief. That couldn't be a more remarkable pairing. Um, I was this angry guy. And, uh, you know, when before I was saved, I, I hated, hated my family in many respects. And, um, and the Lord taught me to love my family. And when my wife and I would have a disagreement, I defaulted to the ways I saw disagreements handled when I was growing up. A lot of yelling and noise and breaking things. And, and um, one time, this was even when we were in school together, we were married. I got so angry, I punched a metal bureau drawer on a, a door where you hang up clothes and things inside. And it busted all the hinges, all three of them, pow, pow, pow. You know, I was, I was more bulked up back then. And, um, and, and, and I had to explain to our landlady, who was the college nurse, why this preacher boy had busted up part of her furniture. Um, anger, anger. The Lord began to deal with that. When I share parts of my story with people, they, they don't believe that. They say, well, you're, you just seem so gentle. I say, oh, you don't know <laughs> what it was like. There's still uh, a very, not a very nice Texan that still lives there. And um, um, if he, if he, well, never mind. So <laughs> one of the things, though, that I wrestled with is I began to grow in Christ. And this really became a factor maybe six or seven years after I came to know the Lord. And I was married and we were beginning to have children. I began to realize that I did not um, experience the love of God the way that I saw some other believers who seemed to experience the love of God. I understood something of the love of God in my head, but I was really wrestling with understanding the love of God on a heart level. And... Um, I had friends who were into counseling and stuff, and I would talk with them, and they were very good, but it didn't help. And so I began praying about that, began committing that issue to the Lord. And and you need to understand that this went on for years. It was a long time where I, I kept recognizing. I had the sense of I was always the exception. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I kept thinking, yeah, that's true. But I'm the guy in the corner that it doesn't apply to. And I would preach these things, these truths, and, and I believed them. I, I counted on them. But I was not experiencing that on my own, in my own heart. There was, there was such a, uh, there are reasons for it, but there's just such a brokenness there over that issue. Um, so I just began praying about it. And, I, and, and, and we're talking tonight about praying and not losing heart. And there's some things we pray about and the Lord, you know, answers it before you say amen. There's other things you pray about and you're still praying about them. And I want to talk to you tonight about what it means to pray about something in the sense of, of carrying it on, continuing to trust the Lord and continuing to place something before him. And as... as um, as Colin mentioned this morning, carrying a burden, but, but letting the Lord carry that burden by praying and continuing to cast this thing before him. And so I prayed and I read books and, and I let people 
lay hands on me and just whatever. You you want to pray for me? Pray for me. What I'll take whatever you got. I, I'm I'm all about it. And so I've been praying that there was an intensity to that cry that developed a few years ago, and um, and I just found myself really focused on this issue. It was I was writing about it in my journal. I was reading scripture. I was asking the Lord to to deal with this in me that obviously it was something beyond my ability to address and and I needed him as my father to address it. So I'm laying down to go to sleep. And um I wasn't being particularly spiritual at that moment, but I I usually my heart turns to the Lord before I go to sleep. Turns to the Lord when I get up three or four times in the night. You older men will understand. And um, I just say, I love you, Lord. You know, I tell him, he'll say, I love you, Lord. And I was going to sleep that particular night, and and very clearly, in the way that I've learned to recognize over time, the Lord brought a scripture to mind, spoke to my heart. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I thought for a moment, that's somewhere in the Bible. I couldn't remember exactly where that was. I couldn't. Preaching, teaching for you, I couldn't remember where it was. So the lights are out, everybody's asleep. My wife's asleep. So I get up and I go down the hall, go to my my study and turn on the light over my desk. I get my Bible out and I begin looking and I found it. Jeremiah 31.3. Here's what it says. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Lord, why are you saying that to me? And then the thoughts just begin to come. And it's like a whole way of thinking that I'd had began to crumble. Just began to unravel. As I looked at that verse. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And I said, well, you know, when I share John 3.16 with people. You know, everlasting means everlasting. I explain to people. When we talk about God being an everlasting God, an eternal God. It means we're talking about a God who has no beginning. And who has no end. And I realized at that moment, he says, I've loved you that way. With an everlasting love. He was telling me something about the way he loves. I I realized all of a sudden. He loves me with an everlasting love. A love that has no beginning. And a love that has no end. By the way if you struggle with this. It's called Jeremiah 31.3. Read it. And I didn't have. Have a um, overwhelming uh, emotional encounter. But I had an encounter with God that that reshaped my sense of his love for me. Because I realized that there was never a time, even when I was lost and I did the very worst things, and even after I was a Christian, I did some of the worst things I thought I'd ever done in my life. As a believer, even after all of those things, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. There was never a time, Don, where I didn't love you and I started to love you. I have always loved you. 
And I thought, you know, all this time, I thought God loved people because they were lovable. And I was absolutely convinced I wasn't lovable, which was true. But what the Lord showed me was my struggle all those years was because I was focused on me. Does God love me? Instead of how does God love? And what he showed me that night is that this is the way I love people. This is the way I love you. It's about the way I love. It's not about whether or not you're lovable. This is the way I choose to love. I love people in such a way that my love had no beginning. I love them always. I've loved them. Well, I share that tonight because what he brought to mind at that particular moment, that's happened in other areas of my life in different ways as I prayed about things, some things for a week, some things for a year, some things for years, and I still don't have an answer. But the turnaround came as he brought something to mind, as he brought his truth, his word, or he spoke to my heart in such a way that I recognized it was God's voice. And... And sometimes we wrestle with this issue of God's voice, but I don't know why. We, we should understand that, that He desires to communicate with us. When Jesus opened up the Scripture and explained them to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as He opened up the Scripture? And there's, there's a way that He takes His Word and He speaks to us. Well, I'm running a field here. Um, last night we talked about Luke chapter 18, and I just want to call your attention to that for a moment. Luke 18 verse one. And what we talked about, if you weren't here last night was in this particular parable, the theme of our conference is faithful in prayer. And in this particular passage of scripture, Jesus starts the passage. He says in Luke 18 verse one, then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And as he speaks that, he goes on and tells a parable about a woman who had a grievance and she goes to a judge and this judge doesn't care about anybody, doesn't care about what God thinks, doesn't care about what people think. And he, he she, she goes to this judge and she makes her case. He doesn't listen to her. He just ignores her. And she keeps coming, and she keeps coming, and she keeps coming. And as a consequence of her keeping on, keeping on, the judge finally acquiesces to her request and gives her, avenges her, the Bible says. And Jesus says, hear what the unjust judge says. He says, because I I don't care what God thinks, I don't care what man thinks, but because this woman is wearing me out, I will avenge her. And Jesus says, hear what that judge said. Shouldn't God, won't God, avenge his own elect, his people, his chosen, his loved ones? Won't God avenge them who are crying out to him day and night? And so there's a certainty to that. It's an inevitability to that. This is the way God answers our prayer. He does come. He does respond. Everyone who asks receives. We saw that in Luke 11. But at the very end in verse 8, he has this statement. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
And we talked about that last night. Will he find faith on the earth? And we saw how, how what Jesus is looking for when he comes back as king of kings and manifests his kingdom for all time, all eternity, when he returns, will we be that generation where he doesn't see a lot of people who are trusting him? And, and he's talking about an exhibition of faith that is verified or exemplified by the kind of praying that cries out to God day and night, that will not stop, that has such a confidence that He's there and He hears that we keep coming to Him because He loves us and He has chosen us and we know He cares for us. But obviously there's an issue because... He asks the question, which opens up the possibility, he's doing that, I'm not, that there could be such hardship for that last generation, such difficulty to be a believer in that environment at that time in history. It could be such a problem to be a believer that some people will quit praying. Praying will be so empty. So perfunctory, so such a minimal part of the believer's life that Jesus comes back. He's just not seeing people who are seeking God in the midst of all that trouble and difficulty. And we talked about last night how one of the great challenges for people is when they pray about something and God doesn't answer or he doesn't answer the way they want them to. And so they're struggling with that. They're wrestling with that. And so many people have walked away from God. We can talk about whether they were saved or not another time. But they walk away from what they know of God because they have this grievance. They wouldn't maybe put it that way, but they have experienced some horrible loss, some horrible difficulty. And as a consequence of that loss, they have written God off. That's extreme. So the question is, goes back to the verse 1. The question tonight. It was at that moment when he was teaching about end times, at that moment Jesus was looking at his disciples and he said to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. At all times they should be praying. But what does it mean to pray and not lose heart? And we touched on that today in some of the other sessions and and they've been excellent. And I particularly, particularly was encouraged when Art was talking about prayer as simply coming to God. To be with Him. And that He sees that heart who comes to be with Him. And so, I think about the exhibition of faith that that represents. For someone who comes to be with Him. I, he must be there. That's why I'm here. I'm coming to be with Him. There's more. The Scripture, I believe, has... And there's a word picture, not a word picture. There's a, there's a way of thinking about prayer that I want to convey tonight. I'm trusting that it will be encouraging to you because what does it mean to pray and not lose heart? There's a dynamic to our, your prayer life that you need to know about that, that can sustain a prayer life through any circumstance that you face. And it's not on you to make that happen. But there's something that he is doing that you need to be aware of. 
And so to help us think about this tonight, I've got three other passages of Scripture I want us to to consider. And the first one is found in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Um, In this passage of Scripture, the writer is talking about the priesthood that Jesus represents, the kind of high priest that he is. And he's comparing and contrasting the ministry of Jesus with the the Levitical priesthood, and with the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's saying some things about that. But in this passage, in in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 23, it says, Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So when a a priest died, they couldn't be a priest anymore. It was over. No, no, No more opportunity to be a priest. But he, because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. That means completely. Every little bit of your life that has to be saved. He's able to completely save your life. Nothing is left behind. Those Uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives. Look at that. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. If you know him, he's praying for you. You need to know that. There's not one moment in your life where Jesus is not praying for you. He's praying for you in advance of anything that's coming into your life. When you leave this place tonight, the very ground that you walk over has been prayed over by the Lord Jesus. When that thing comes into your life that you were unprepared for, you had no idea it was coming, it's completely disoriented you, and you don't know which ends up, and you don't know where to begin to process this with the Lord, He has already prayed about that before it ever got to you. When we think about praying and not losing heart, this is the foundation of why we don't lose heart. Is because your precious Savior always has you on His mind. Now what does it look like when Jesus prays for somebody? Well, we don't have to guess. I want to take you to another passage of Scripture. Found in Luke 22. So if you were in Luke 18, had your finger there, just go to Luke 22. Luke 22 is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. This is the event surrounding the Last Supper and the conversations around there. And they're pretty pretty disheartening at times. Um, just shortly before this, if I remember correctly, it's when Satan entered Judas. And this demonized follower... And these crooked priests conspire to betray Jesus. And so all these events are taking place, all right? But in the very midst of that, in Luke 22, verse 31. And, and Jesus is just teaching, and he's talking, and he's saying things to them. And it's like abruptly, this, is, this seems sudden. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, not if, but when, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And so Jesus makes it very clear. He's already prayed for him. This is the way this is written. He, he's already, he already knew this was coming into Peter's life. And he's already prayed for Peter. And this is, this is exactly the way he prays for you and me. Satan desires to sift Peter like wheat. Not sure what that means. Doesn't sound good. But as we keep reading the text, we see that obviously Peter's faith is at risk. And the enemy is going to do something to attack and undermine Peter's faith. Have you ever felt that your faith was being attacked? When we read about the armor of God, we read about the shield of faith. And that wards off the attacks of the enemy. Fiery darts, doubts, discouragement, And we lift up that shield, but this was something where the very shield was in trouble. And Satan was was directly involved, and he was going to bring such pain, such regret, such shame, personal disappointment and shame into Peter's life, that there was a risk that Peter could walk away from God. And just go back and fish and just die a fisherman. But Jesus was praying for it. So that wasn't going to happen. You with me? Jesus is praying for him. The outcome, he's telling him in advance. He he saves to the uttermost. The writer of Hebrews says. Because he is always praying. He said that we're supposed to always pray. But he's really doing it. He's always praying for us. And he's praying for Peter in this moment. It's really interesting. It doesn't show up here unless they use southern English. When Jesus says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. He is addressing Simon. The other disciples are sitting there. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for y'all. So this attack on faith is not just going to affect Peter. It's going to affect all the disciples. But then he goes singular on the word you after that. So, so in one sense, Satan's going to attack all of them. But he's addressing Peter. And he says, I want you to know I have prayed for you specifically, Peter, that your faith would not fail. That your faith would not stop. That your faith would not, would not go away. And so, and then he makes this encouraging statement. And this had to be, I know this was bewildering to Peter. You'll see this in a moment. But he, but he makes this statement. He says, and when you have returned to me, he says, when, not if, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now I want you to use your imagination for a moment. This is really good Bible study. 
when you put yourself into the text and use your imagination. Let's say I'm Jesus. I'm not. Let's, let's say I'm Jesus. What's your name, brother? John. John? In the next four hours. I'm not going to say it. But what if, what if you're John and Jesus in front of everybody describes the most embarrassing and horrible kind of sinful departure from everything we've been studying and everything we've been teaching. And Jesus comes to John and says, John, in the next few hours, you're going to do the worst thing you've ever done in your life. But I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. I don't know about you, but my inner Texan is going to react to that. First of all, I didn't like that you just called me out. And that you just, you just almost feels like he shouldn't have done that. And Peter says, there's no way, no way that I would ever do that to you. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you and die with you. And you just hear this self-confidence and self-reliance coming through what Peter's saying. And it becomes pretty clear what Jesus is wanting to accomplish through this in Peter's life. Because dear one, self-reliance is deadly. Spiritually deadly. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him completely. He doesn't want you to trust him plus three or four other things. He wants you just to trust him. And he's coming and allowing this thing to come. And when you look at this text, that's exactly what's, what's taking place. He, he, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Somebody gave him permission. Somebody said, all right, Satan. And so there was a permission involved. And, and those of you who are Bible scholars, you've studied the text, you understand that, that there is a, a safety that you and I have in God, that particularly those of us in Christ, that, that, that Jesus said, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And so there's the Father and the Son on the outside and there's Jesus on the inside. And before anything can ever get to you, it must first, first pass through the Father and pass through the Son before it gets to you. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, Jesus didn't say it, but it's implied. And the implication is, and and somebody told him, yes, he could do that. Nothing gets to you that God looks at it and says, whoops, that wasn't supposed to get through. And that's a hard truth. I mean, there's some things that get through. When we were getting ready to move to South Louisiana, we were going to have movers move our stuff, but, but we were going to move my books, my precious books, separately. All 4,500 books with a U-Haul, and I had some men in the church help me. And um, we were getting, we got done. All the boxes were in there, and I went by a, a one of my favorite stores, Tractor Feed Store, and to get some straps to tie those boxes down so they didn't move around in the back of the truck. And I was there by myself. I had driven it slowly, got there, uh, got the straps, jumped up on the back of the truck, got everything secure. And when I turned around to step off the back of the truck, somehow I missed the step. And I fell, knocked the daylights out of myself, broke my wrist in three places, came to Louisiana my first day. I was, 
I was addressing, praying at an evangelism conference, and I looked like I'd been in a fight. My head was beat up, and I was, you know, and I was there, Jesus saves, you know. And God knew, God knew I was going to fall off that truck. And one of the great mercies of God is he doesn't give us all of the steps that are coming ahead of us at once. Amen? Because if if he did, I would argue with him about some of the steps. Lord, that step off the truck. <laughs> I don't want that step, you know. So, so Satan had been given permission. Nothing gets to your life that he doesn't first permit. The, the other thing that we see there is that there was a purpose to it. There was a purpose to it. And, and, um, and there was protection involved. Jesus said, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith not, may not fail. And so all of these things are taking place in his life. And we see this amazing work of Jesus anticipating what's happening, knowing what's happening, praying for Peter. You know, what's remarkable about this, Peter battles with self-reliance. And one of the things I know that is happening is Jesus wants wants Peter to stop relying on himself and having confidence in himself and loving himself. And he wants Jesus, he wants Peter to look at Jesus for everything. And we see this, and we don't have time to do this, but it's really remarkable if you read John 21 later, and Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. And I think it was John that said, it's the Lord. They saw him on the shore. They've been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. Whoever this guy was on the shore, they didn't know yet who it was. Said, put your nets down one more time. And this is John 21. Well, when Peter began to follow Jesus, that had happened in John 5. They'd been fishing all night. Jesus said, put the nets down again. And they, the nets were full to bursting. And you remember Peter dropped on his knees and just confessed that he was a sinful man. And then Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fishers of men. I, the way you just caught fish is the way I'm going to teach you to catch men. Men like that, being called like that. Jesus knows the heart of men. He had called Peter in that way. So so it, they, they had been fishing all night again. You know, it's almost comical. They, they I don't know, over half the disciples were involved in this fishing expedition. And Peter said, let's go fishing. You know, Jesus is risen from the dead, but it's just not computing and they don't understand what's happening. So they go fishing, fish all night, don't catch anything. And and this guy on the shore says, put your nets down one more time. And they catch 153 fish, the Bible records. Now, I don't, I don't know who sat around later and counted all the fish, but... But in, in cultures that pass stories along through, through telling and retelling, uh, that kind of detail adds validity to the story. That orality, that, those little marks. And another one that's there is it says that Peter threw off his cloak. No, it didn't. He left his cloak on and jumped in the water and, and swam to the shore. That's odd. You know, if you're making stuff up, you don't put silly things in like that. And so they get there and Jesus is already cooking some fish, already has some bread, you know, ready for them. And then what was going through Peter's mind at that moment? I blew it. And now he's alive. What's he going to say to me? 
You know, I'm thinking what I would say to Peter. Well, that was, that was a mess. Nice try, big guy. Let's go at it again one more time. You know, that's not at all what Jesus did, is it? The question Jesus asked Peter three times was what? Do you love me? And by asking that question, you can see something of what broke down in Peter. It wasn't necessarily an obedience issue. It was a love issue. We're called to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Peter fell short of that. And he was more concerned with self-preservation, self-defense, preserving his, his rep, whatever the case is. And, and we can point fingers at him, but you and I are just like that. There's a part of us that wants to protect ourselves, take care of ourselves, loving ourselves. So each time he says, feed my sheep or tend my sheep or feed my sheep, however your, your translation reads, and, and so you read that and you wonder, what does he mean by that? Well, if you go back to Luke 22, he says, when you have returned to me. Got it. Thank you, Esther. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What does it mean to strengthen the brethren? Paul went back to the churches he started and says he strengthened the churches. And if you read those passages closely, he has strengthened their faith. With great authority, Peter could look at the other disciples and said, guys. You can't trust yourself. Let, take my word for it. Don't put your faith in, in yourself. But you can trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord. But what made all of that possible was what? Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And he's praying that for you tonight. And I don't know what all he's praying. He's praying all kinds of things for you. And it's in the context of the one who knows all things. So so that's one dimension I want you to just sort of have planted in your mind. And now I want you to turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. And when you come to Romans 8, you have so many things here that are said about the Holy Spirit. There's this marvelous teaching about the Holy Spirit. And what's taught here is that there's this new way to live now that's not the old way of the law where you have the things written on the wall. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Now go do all that. But now he's taken his Holy Spirit. He's put him inside of us. And we have this new way to live. The Holy Spirit's going to produce the righteousness that we could not produce ourselves. And, um, you know, the Galatians were getting muddied in their mind about all of this. And, and at one point Paul you know, just says, guys, who's bewitched you? You know, having begun in the spirit, are you now seeking to be made perfect by the flesh? And so there's this entirely new way to live. So there's a lot said here about the Holy Spirit that I'm not going to talk about. I just want to zero in on this, this one truth. And it's found in verse 26. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And incidentally, if you go on down towards the end of the chapter, uh, down to uh, verse 34, Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. 
and furthermore is also ridden, risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. There it is again. We read about that in, in Hebrews, but now we see again in Romans, he is interceding for us. But what's interesting in this passage of Scripture is that while Jesus is interceding for us, we discover that someone else is making intercession when we pray. And as I look at that, what I discover is that the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. And what's really interesting is that word in English, helps, is about this long in Greek. It really is. It's a, it's a marvelous word. And it has this idea of holding something together. This idea of doing something together, doing it with, holding strong together, pulling together, working together. And he says that the Holy Spirit helps, is doing that with us in our weaknesses. Now, this is not limited to your prayer life. But here he's applying it to our prayer life. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought. Do you always know what to pray for? Some years ago, and First um, John 5.14 became very real to me. I think Art or somebody made reference to that this morning. That when God hears in the New Testament, right? When God hears in the New Testament, and the Bible says he hears, you got it. You got it. Uh, in fact, let me just... Let me just read it real quick. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There it is. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so when I pray, do I know what to pray for? If. If I want an answer, it stands to reason from a passage like the one in First John that unless I pray according to his will, I'm not, I'm not going to be heard in the answering sense. And so I might search the scripture for promises and, and that's, that's not a bad thing to do. In fact, it's absolutely the right thing to do. But you can't do that in your own strength. You really can't. The promise, the word that God has that he wants to apply to whatever you're asking him about is something he is going to press on your mind, press on your heart, or there may be nothing. What I discovered is that I had sometimes lists of things to pray about. And I would pray through the list, oh God, Bless my wife. I have six kids. It takes a while to go through the six kids. And and then I start praying for my pastors. I have 90 churches that I work with. And goodness, it's a lot. But then I began to realize, now wait a minute. Jesus always, he lives to always, always lives to make intercession for me and for his people. And And what this passage says is that even when I don't know what to pray about, the Holy Spirit who lives in me is praying. While I'm praying, He's praying. But my praying may be silence. 
My praying may be simply sitting before the Lord and holding that thing to Him. That petition, that need, that cry. In my experience, I began to to change the way I was praying. I began to pray for my wife. And I, you know, not knowing any place else to start, I just say, Lord, how do you want me to pray for Gail today? And I may not hear something. I may not read something that comes to mind. And I said, Lord, I trust you, my wife. I know you love her. I know you're praying for her. Lord, how do you want me to pray for Rachel today? That's my oldest daughter. And I would hold hold something, my daughter up before him, and she's 37. All, all she's ever wanted to be is a wife and a mom. But she's single. Oh, God. You know your plan for my daughter. And I know you love her and you're praying for her. When she graduated high school, the, the, she was in the middle of her senior year. And I took a, a retreat just to, to pray through some things. I find that in my life there are times where I really need concentrated or extended time alone with God in order just to sit with him and hold things before him. And so I was, I was praying about her. It's her senior year. Life's going to change, right? When you're to your senior year of high school, it seemed like the whole world's in front of you. What am I supposed to do with my life? And we had these six kids and she's the oldest one and she's always been like a second mom. You understand the dynamic in a large family. She's always like the second mom, always helping her mom, always helping take care of the little ones. And, and so I was praying for her. And, uh, this was like in November or something of her senior year. And, and as I'm praying for her, and I, Lord, how do you want me to pray for Rachel? I'm just holding her in my heart. Not, not with my hands, but in my heart. I'm holding her before the Lord. And, he, and, and a whole concept, a whole thought came to mind. Send her away next summer when she graduates. And as I reflected on that, meditated, reflected on what, I, what God was saying... So things, so many things became clear. I wrote them down in my journal. When I got home, with with what had worked out in my heart, as I had prayed about it, reflected on it, I, I asked Rachel. I said, "Rachel, let's go for a walk." I said, "Rachel, you know, Daddy was away on retreat this last week." She said, "I know, Dad." I said, well, "I was praying for you. God told me something to do for you." What? God told me to send you away next summer when you graduate to spend the summer. And I says, I prayed about it, thought about it. Here's, here's the deal. You can go anywhere in the country. Mom and I'll buy the plane ticket. You can go anywhere in the country as long as it's a ministry related job or ministry related, you know, work. We're going to, we're going to send you there and let you be a part of that ministry for the summer. And, and she almost froze. Really? I said, yeah. And she wasn't sure she liked that. It was love, hate, fear, all these things at once. You know, she'd never had an experience like that. And as it worked out, we knew people and called people. And we had a large, very large conference center in New Mexico, Glorieta um, Conference Center, Retreat Center up in the mountains, 8,000 feet. 
beautiful place. And she went out there to work in their cafeteria for the summer as thousands of people came through and retreat. First time in her life, she hadn't had anybody else to take care of except herself. First time in her life, she didn't have mom or dad telling her how to walk with God or what to do. She was completely on her own. And for her, it was a life-defining summer. She'd tell you today, it changed her life. As she began to, to learn some things about herself and about the Lord. And for herself, not because we taught her all these things, but she knew it for herself. Now, dear ones, I am not smart enough to come up with that plan. I'm telling you, that was never on my radar screen and wouldn't have been in a thousand years. But the Holy Spirit's praying when you pray. And so, and so to help us with this, and don't laugh at my artwork. My, my wife is an artist. She's a wonderful watercolor type person. She, she paints every day. She does this stuff. I do stick figures. So look at this picture. All right. I got to explain this to you. And this is not representative of spiritual reality, but it's a way of talking about what we need to talk about. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He's doing it right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He is praying for us. There's nothing coming in your life. He hasn't fully comprehended and has a, an eternal purpose to accomplish in your life as this thing passes through. Okay, he's doing that. So that's Jesus up in the upper right hand corner. He's in heaven. And by the way, you're one with him. That's why the picture's a little broken. You know, you're unified with him. Your life is hid with Christ. In God, Colossians 3, you're, you're there. But we're not always conscious of that. And so there he is. He's in heaven. He's praying. He's praying. He's praying. So you get up in the morning. Uh, and you're going you're gonna to pray. You sit down and get your cup of coffee, whatever. You, I don't know what you do. I walk. You know, everybody's different. And you begin to pray. The moment you begin to pray. The Holy Spirit begins to pray. That's what Romans teaches. The moment you begin to pray, the Holy Spirit's praying. And the marvelous thing about praying in the Spirit, and I believe that's what that means in Ephesians 6, to pray in the Spirit continually for all the saints. The, the marvelous thing about that is what you are doing is merely joining Jesus as he prays. There's a very real opportunity that you have for the Holy Spirit to enable you to become part of the stream of prayer that the Lord Jesus is already praying. And so when I thought of what I thought of for Rachel, this is just an example, small one. But when that came to mind on that morning, I was, I was praying for her. I believe I was praying for her because inside me, the Holy Spirit, Bubbled to the surface this sense that I needed to pray for my daughter. Uh, one of the things I like about First John, if you've ever tried to outline First John, you probably have lost your mind or you cheated and copied somebody else's. Uh, John was older when he wrote First John. If any of you have ADD or ADHD, I think John had it, at least when he wrote First John. The purpose of 1 John is to do what? To assure us 
that, you know, we have trusted Christ and that we can know that because we believed in him, that we are saved, that we have eternal life. And so what John is doing as he's writing is what are the markers of someone, the proof that they actually know God, that that the Holy Spirit has come inside them and joined with their spirit and they're being transformed from the inside out. What's What's the proof of that? When, when someone is born of God, they, they love the brethren. Oh, that's good. He writes that one down. Uh, when someone's born of God, they don't walk in darkness. Oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. But I thought of something else about what it means to be born of God and, and, and uh, to love the brethren. So it means this. And then, oh, man, when someone is, it knows God and, and loves God, perfect fear is cast out. They're not afraid of judgment day. Perfect fear is cast out. I mean, excuse me, fear is cast out by perfect love. And he's just writing all these things. I sat down one time, tried to identify everything. I, I think I counted 13 things, and most of those are repeated several times. These markers. And what, what John is doing is he's describing this. When someone is born again, and the Holy Spirit comes to merge with the human spirit, and they become one spirit with Christ, and, and that union has taken place, the Holy Spirit immediately begins to transform that human life. And this work that he's doing is unseen and powerful. In all of your efforts to grow in Christ, it is the Holy Spirit at work in you who is accomplishing your transformation. And what John is doing, he says, but what are the markers of this activity of the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit's inside in the shallows, the deep end of your heart, and he's at work, when it, what does it look like? I've got a friend who's a scuba diver. And he said there are times when they would dive into caves or they would dive at night that you would get disoriented and not know which way is up. And, you know, I think when you're underwater, it's important to know which way is up. Personally. And so one of the tricks of the trade is they have the respirators and those bubbles are going off their scuba tanks and they would simply watch where the bubbles go because <laughs> the bubbles always go to the top. And all of these markers, assurances that someone knows God that he's writing about are not things that you're supposed to start doing. These are indicators of the Holy Spirit at work in the human heart. They bubble from the depths where you can't see and you're not fully conscious, and it bubbles to the surface. When I became a believer, I stopped going to the discos. You don't, I know you can't believe it, but I had some moves. (laughs) Not right away, but several months after I became a Christian, I stopped drinking alcohol. That doesn't I know that there's different views among believers about alcohol, but I have alcoholism running back several generations in my family. And the Lord said, this is not for you. And so I stopped. No one said, stop doing that. I lost interest in it. My heart was changing. I wanted to be at church all the time. If they would just unlock the doors, I'd go in there and sit. I wanted to be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. What I thought was weird before I was saved was wonderful after I was saved. That was the Holy Spirit changing my heart. I didn't read that. Well, you're supposed to love going to church. Now, now start going. You know, no, it bubbles to the surface. Same thing with your prayer life. You cannot pray in your own strength. 
Jesus teaches, apart from me, you can do nothing. In John 15, 5 and verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. And he he talks about prayer in the context of abiding. And he's saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The vine supplies everything the branch needs to produce fruit. And that's true in your prayer life. Jesus, who is interceding, has given you his spirit. And the moment you begin to pray, the spirit begins to pray. And the picture that I have sometimes is what happens in Exodus 17, where Israel's fighting Amalek. And Moses goes up on a hill, and every time his hands are raised, which symbolizes prayer, Israel's winning the battle. And his hands get tired. Obviously, he didn't come from a Pentecostal background. And his hands get tired. And and Amalek begins to win the battle. So Aaron and Hur, seeing what's happening, they, they go up there. They, they say, Moses, sit here. They put him on a rock, and one holds his hand up, and the other one holds his hand up. And as long as prayer is occurring, the battle is being won. Now, dear ones, there's a mystery here. But your prayer life matters in the unseen realm. You know, because you've read about it in the Scripture, there's a world you can't see that dramatically affects the world you do see. And in some way I don't fully understand, you get to be a part of what's happening in that unseen dimension and it influences the world around you. There are people who desperately need your prayers. You are helping people when you pray. And and the, the, the mysterious part of this is Jesus is praying. The moment you begin to pray, the Holy Spirit's praying. And there are times where you won't know what to pray and you just sit before the Lord. You hold a need before Him. And there's just a sense when you're done and you leave the need with him and you go on about your day, but you may come back to it later in the day. You may come back to it tomorrow. You pick up that need again. Say, Lord. And then maybe on day 2033, some scripture comes to mind like I have loved you with an everlasting love. And at that moment, Jesus, who has been praying for me, conveys to the Spirit who is praying And what the Spirit is praying bubbles to the surface. And I know how to pray. I know how to pray. I know what I need to do. I know how to pray for this person. And once I know how to pray, I have. I pray anything according to His will. He says, I have the thing that I'm praying for. I understand this this relationship personally it sustains my prayer life because I, honestly I don't have a clue how to pray most of the time but I know that the moment I begin to pray the Holy Spirit begins to pray and I may not get it right he always gets it right and there's this mysterious union as the Spirit is praying, as Jesus is praying. And then sometimes he, he opens the door and says, we want to include you in this way. So um, what Art described today is absolutely true. The Father wants you to come and seek him, to cry out to him day and night, not just for answers, but for him, for him. One of the sweet things, if you read the story of Hannah, who didn't have a child, you remember that?
in First Samuel, and she's crying out for a child, crying out for a child, crying out for a child. And, and, and there's a change in her prayer life. She's been praying a long time. There's a change in her prayer life. When you go back, when you go back and read it, there's a shift, and she's no longer concerned about getting the baby. When I get the baby, I'm going to give him to you, Lord. But I need to know that you see me, that you remember me, that you hear me. See, now it's not about the just the prayer, the answer to prayer. I need to know that you are there and that you love me and that we have this relationship. It's all about Him. It's no longer just about the answer. So, when we conceive that prayer is a relationship and not a discipline or just an activity, we, we have the foundation for prayer life that can go through anything that comes. Anything that comes your way. Well, let's do this. Let me ask you, please, just to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I'm going to ask Josiah to come up here and join me. And he's going to begin to play quietly. And there's so many things we could pray about. And I'm kind of looking at the clock and wondering, Lord, do I want to go this way or that way? But I believe that God has spoken tonight. That He's made clear to us that our prayer life matters to Him. That we ought always to pray at all times. Because our prayers are greatest expression of faith. That your faith, dear one, is the most valuable thing that God seeks from your life. So how does he want you to respond? The Holy Spirit's always praying inside me. When I pray, He begins to pray. I think I want Him to have all the room He needs in my life. I think praying is going to be a lot easier if I give Him all my wants and desires. Trust Him with those things. Instead of grasping and trying to force God's hand in some way. Just surrender. Lord, here's my life. Every part of my thinking, my activity, all my decisions. Lord, I just want to be a part of the all that You're doing in my generation, my world. So in your heart, would you just take time to tell him? That you love him? That you want him to birth in you 
a fresh desire to pray, a thirst for Him that only He can quench, only He can satisfy. Father, we say hallelujah. Hallelujah. We give you praise. Father, from this evening forward, we ask that every time we turn to you in prayer, that we would have a sense of awe and wonder at what we are about to do Forgive us for being in a hurry. Forgive us for rushing. Father, teach us to become unhurried. To rest our time in your hands. To rest our hearts in your hands. To give you the time that you want to shape us and mold us and our prayer life into the prayer life that Jesus has. Father, You have told us that the fields are white for harvest. You told Your disciples that the problem was not the harvest. And You told them to pray, to ask, What was on your heart is that people who would love the lost, who would have your heart for the lost, would be expelled and thrust out into the harvest. Father, when we pray, create in us a fresh sense of the urgency of the hour, the gravity, the dear ones that need us to pray for them, that need to be helped by our prayers. We want to be willing vessels. And we want our prayer life to reflect what You're doing in our souls. We look to You, Lord. I pray that as each of these dear ones begin to step away from this weekend, that each time they pray and each time they open Your Word, that they would do so with an expectancy that You are a good Father who hears the cries of His children. Would You meet with us Would you meet with us each time we turn to you?
And forgive us for neglecting this privilege of praying to You through the Son and by Your Spirit. We bless You, Lord. We ask these things, we pray, with the heart of Jesus. Amen.